Hello, and welcome back to Drafting the Past. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and this is a podcast all about the craft of writing history. Before we get to the interview, I just want to take a minute to say a quick thanks for your patience while I've been on a break. I am delighted to report that I had a healthy baby boy in April, but so far he's not a very effective production assistant, so things have been a little slow around here. That said, I'm so excited to be getting back to the interviews that I recorded earlier this spring. This episode features an interview with writer and historian Dr. Aaron Sachs. Aaron researches and teaches environmental history at Cornell, and he is the author of four books and one edited collection. I have been excited to talk with Aaron for several years, ever since I first heard about the Historians Are Writers group that he led at Cornell. We talked about that and the two books that Aaron has recently published. First, Up From the Depths, Herman Melville, Lewis Mumford, and Recovery in Dark Times, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and Biography. And in April, he published Stay Cool, Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change. As a quick editorial note, we spoke back in March, so you'll hear us talking about this book as forthcoming. But in fact, it's out now, and you can and should get a copy. In the meantime, enjoy our conversation. I started off in college very interested in writing, and and I also graduated during a recession in 1992, and it was not easy to find a job where I could pursue writing. I wasn't, I wasn't brave enough, I guess, to just try to be a writer flat out. But I really got lucky with my first job af- after you know, trying for several months. I landed at a nonprofit environmental organization called the World Watch Institute, which was a place where they basically did research and writing. And my favorite part of that job was getting to write articles for their bi-monthly magazine. And that, that really sort of fed my uh, desire to keep writing and to write in a way that was broadly accessible, let's say, and, um, and more creative. And, you know, eventually then I went on to graduate school because I, I, I really enjoyed my job at World Watch, but it was in a way, a little bit too sort of policy oriented for my tastes. And I really missed the humanities. And I really, I really also love, have always loved teaching and wanted that to be a part of my life. And so I found myself going to graduate school for a PhD in American studies. But I said to myself, I only want to do this if I get to write the way I want to write within the academy. And that that was that was a journey. It was a bit of a struggle at times. Um, but again, I feel like I got really, really lucky and I found the right professors and advisors who encouraged me in that. You know, and then then I moved forward from there and and kind of made it my professional goal as a as an academic historian to combine scholarship serious scholarship and creative writing. And that's what I've been trying to do ever since. So uh, I have a lot of questions about all of that, but I, I want to start with just these practical questions to, to find out a little bit more about how you sure, as, as a writer. So when and where do you do your writing? That has definitely changed over time. So I, I, I teach at Cornell and I moved here in 2004. It was my first job out of graduate school and I had a nine-month-old child. And I was really sort of committed to, you know, 
when I was at home, being at home, being being part of the family, and and so I I wrote exclusively at my campus office, and that's the way it was for several years. My wife and I had two more children after that, and that was wonderful. And I and it really it it remained important to me to to just you know always be present when I was at home and not distracted by my work. So. Yeah, for I guess 15 years, I just wrote in my office in McGraw Hall. And then to be blunt, I inherited some money and we moved houses and I was able to build a little garage slash writing studio uh, in our new backyard. And it was, you know, it's like, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. This was right before the pandemic. It was a year before the pandemic. And so during that year, I it was one of the best writing times of my life where I just I felt like this was and I'm I'm in I, this is where I am right now. And it was it was really like a sanctuary for me. And it was something I had dreamed about for a very, very long time after having I I, I went on this kind of random hike in Connecticut when I was in graduate school. And part of the hike went onto an old property owned by the writer, kind of a, a nature writer named Edwin Way Teal. And he he had a writing shed in the backyard. Um, and I sort of read the plaques and learned about how this was a, a place that he just he used. It was you know a tiny little space, but it was exclusively for writing. He didn't use it for anything else. And and. Ever since that moment, I was like, oh, that would be amazing <laughs> to have something like that. Yeah. And, you know, once the pandemic hit, I had to start using this as my classroom. <laughs> so it's, it feels a little different now, but I still feel so incredibly lucky and grateful to have this dedicated space. So do you have a routine? Do you write at certain times of the day? It's different every day and every project. And it's so, I mean, you, you, you know, about academia, right? I mean, every every academic year is different. You know, the the ideal for me is those rare, rare times when I'm on sabbatical and and can just imagine a day purely devoted to writing. And you know, one of one of those days would be getting up, getting the kids to school, having breakfast, going to write for three to four hours going for a swim because I have a bad back, eating lunch, and then writing for three or four more hours. And that's the day. And that hardly ever happens. But I did get, uh, so with, with the most recent book that I published, which came out last June, writing that book coincided with a sabbatical and the building of my writing studio. And so I, I did have a few months where every day was like that. And it was really one of the most incredible periods of my life. It was so exhilarating. I, it was also helped along by the fact that, you know, in, on this particular project, I had been doing the reading and the research for many, many years already. And I was truly ready to write. And it, it wasn't the kind of, like with many academic projects, many writing projects for me anyway, it's like you're you're ready to write one chapter and then you have to go back and research more and think more and then you know some other time you're ready to write the next chapter. But with this, I had a I had first of all very short chapters 
Second of all, lots of background, and I was really ready to write the whole thing. And and I I got on this role, and I, this is this is not typical, not representative, but I, but I like talking about it because it was so amazing. I got onto this role where I was writing a chapter a week, and each chapter was only about ten pages. Right? It's a book. the The plan for the book was thirty six chapters, and that yeah, that that felt so incredible to just be immersed in that um, and to have this space to do it in. And yeah, I, I don't know if that will ever happen again, but, but I'm glad that it, I got to experience it once. Yeah, man, that does sound amazing. What are your systems like in terms of organizing your sources, um, putting things together? I'm pretty old fashioned. I mean, I don't, uh, it's, it's not index cards, but it's close. <laughs> I have tried various, you know, I have, I have tried uh, some of the programs that people use these days, but ultimately what I, what I come back to is I, I, I have notes on my laptop and then in some cases, handwritten notes. I really like to read books, like physical books. And so for the last project, which was about Herman Melville and Lewis Mumford, both of whom published a whole lot of books, you know, like part of the pleasure of that project was just reading those physical books. And when I read a physical book, I like to mark it up with a pencil. And then I go back over the book and I, I, I have just regular lined paper and I take notes on the notes that I've taken inside the book. And then part of my process is to just constantly reread my notes that I have on the lined paper. And, and when I have notes on my laptop, I will print those up many, many, many pages worth so that I have a hard copy and I can constantly sort of flip through and, and get the stuff into my head that I need for whatever I'm writing in the moment. So yeah, pretty analog. What does revision look like for you? So I think that it's a little... It's it's a little hard for me to talk about revision because well okay I should I I should just defer to this quotation I guess there's a I've read a lot of books about writing and and I've I've written about some of those books and I've tried I've I've really tried to be self conscious about this sort of thing and one of, one of my favorite books about writing is called Several Short Sentences About Writing by Verlin Klinkenborg and he has this. He has many mantras in that book, but one of them is revise at the point of composition. And that that has always been my method. I don't know how that might sound to people just off the top of my head. It, it's I, I think of it as a certain kind of discipline, but I don't want to like I I I I don't want it to be misunderstood as the kind of discipline that prevents people from ever writing anything. I really think it's it's a very very personal thing how how people write and and having taught writing quite a bit, I can say that I I know that lot, there are lots of different techniques that work for different people and some people are people who just need to write very very quickly whatever whatever comes out and then they spend a huge amount of time revising afterwards. And my method is just uh, it's slower. I I make progress more slowly, but I really try to refine sentences in my head before I put them down on the page. And I really try to make sure that 
each sentence follows in in a in a sort of connected and resonant way the previous sentence I, I really focus on transitions a lot when I'm writing a first draft and so my first drafts and you know again I, I hope this it doesn't come out the wrong way I've I've taken a lot of flack from I've been in a many many writing groups and and some of some of my compatriots in the writing groups have have kind of yelled at me and been like Come on, we're making ourselves vulnerable with our rough drafts. Why don't you show us something really rough? And I, and it's like it's a little embarrassing to say, but like I don't really I don't really write super rough drafts. It's not that my drafts are polished, but they're like but they're pretty clean. And that's just that's the way my method is. And then it, it's of course I do a lot of revising and tweaking and I like, you know, I, I really like being in a writing group and I get lots of advice about how to change things and and I really enjoy doing that but it's it's different for every piece and and I do you know I guess I I come back to that piece of advice from Klinkenborg uh of of really trying to revise at the point of composition no I think that's great I I tell people all the time that if the show has a thesis it's that there's no one way to be a writer yeah yeah I think that's great I also love that book and you're the first first guest who's ever mentioned it so I'm oh, very nice. pleased so I'm curious, I mean, I'm I'm excited to talk to you about your own work, which is wonderful, but I also am really excited to talk to you because multiple people have mentioned the Historians as Writers group at Cornell to me. Oh, wow. So I was wondering if you could tell me what it is, how it started, and, and kind of why it was important to you. Sure. Yeah. So Historians are Writers, exclamation points. Are Writers, points. sorry. Um, yes. No, that's okay. With, <laughs> and, and we usually just say, we, we usually just call it ha. That's been... One of the, I mean, maybe I should start by saying it's it's essentially defunct now, which is really really sad, and 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 I I would be happy to talk more about that, but but it it was probably the most important part of my career, I would say. It started with my first PhD advisee, shout out to Dagan Miller, uh, who started here at in two thousand six. And um, from the beginning, he was, I mean, one of the reasons that we were working together is that he was always interested in being a writer as well as a scholar. And, um, and you know, he got to Cornell and entered the PhD program. And, you know, we, we were doing an independent study and we talked about like what we could read. And, you know, he started talking about how Nobody in any of the other classes he was taking was talking about writing at all. It just wasn't a thing. And um, and that led me to to sort of describe this experience that I had had in graduate school myself, which was hugely formative to me, where we it was it was a group called that was just called Writing History. And the faculty mentor for that was John Demos at Yale. And he was, you know, a hugely, he still is a hugely important mentor for me. So grateful for him and everything that he stands for in terms of his just humanity and um, and kindness, uh, as well as scholarship and writing. But that group that I was a part of in graduate school was a, a forum to talk about writing and to share writing with each other and to read things that we found inspiring and so I told Dagan about that and and he was like, let's do it here. And I was like, yep, I'm on it. And it really, 
oh, it just, this was a time um, in, you know, from, from about, I would say 2006 until the pandemic, although it, you know, it, it had already, it, it already felt like there were some challenges before the pandemic, but, but for a nice long run there, it felt like there was space in the academy for people who wanted to do scholarship and creative writing. And, and Ha as a group attracted graduate students from many different departments. And, you know, we, we tended to, to meet often at my house, but, you know, somebody's, somebody's house in the evening with wine and chocolate. And um, it was, it felt very informal and it felt very just inspiring because we, mo most of what we did in Ha was, was just read anything that anybody was interested in reading across every genre you could imagine comic books, plays, poetry, novels, short stories, lots and lots of creative nonfiction. And, and, you know, like these were graduate students and the occasional professor, and we all have way too much reading to do all the time. And yet we showed up every three or four weeks, totally excited to have read this extra thing because it was like, for all of us, it was like, oh, this is, remember when we used to just get pleasure from reading stuff? And, and that, you know, that, that really kept us all afloat and, 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 you know, gradually a core group formed and, you know, the, the older people in the group became mentors to the younger people in the group. And, um, and it, there were certain kinds of traditions and, and sentiments that got passed on. And, um, and it just like, we really, really trusted each other and really felt like we were helping each other. And sometimes we we read our own work and did sort of critical workshops um, on each other's writing. And, um, and we, we, we did that. We focused especially on the writing and the style and the voice and the tone and not, not on the scholarship or the historiography or anything like that. Um, it was just a completely different kind of workshop. And yeah, and so you, you can tell, I think, from my voice how exciting it was and how just grateful I was to be a part of that. It really was an incredibly rich intellectual and artistic community. And, and I'm really sad, you know, it's like basically the, as, as the market, the academic job market got worse and worse in the teens, I think it was much harder for, for graduate students to feel like they could spend time doing creative work, doing extra work. It was just, you know, there was so much focus on just like, how might it be possible to get a job in these, with these terrible odds? And so there was less interest in Ha in general. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm, this is, we shouldn't, we shouldn't make this into a therapy session for me, but, um, but I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out like, you know, if this is just over or if there's, uh, if there's some other way of doing it that could be helpful to people. Um, it meant, it meant so much to me to be able to be a mentor to those kinds, specifically to those kinds of students who were, you know, really like they really wanted to be academic scholars, but, but they didn't see any reason why they couldn't also be creative writers. 
and uh, that you know that was a sentiment I shared, and I really I relished getting to sort of support people in um, in doing that, and sad not to not to be as actively doing that anymore. Sure. Can I just ask, you know, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how much you're willing to, to talk about <laughs> yourself, but like, what's, what's, you know, what's your experience with all of this? And, and how, how do you see it playing out in the Academy right now? Um, I have always wished for more conversation about writing as craft in the Academy. That's it's a big reason I started the show, Yeah, uh, which coincided with me sitting down to start writing my dissertation. And I uh-huh. thought, you know, and I always was that weirdo in seminars who wanted to ask, like, why did you choose this narrative structure? How did you organize your notes for this? Yeah. And and it felt like there wasn't a place for that. So yeah, I, I totally see that. And it seems like as I've talked to people, you know, one one professor who's dedicated to talking about writing can make a huge difference for people. Yeah. So I've, there are some grad students who've taken amazing classes on writing history, but unless there's there's that person with that commitment, it kind of gets left left right. out of the process. It is interesting though, because I, I feel like at least from my observations, it seems like people who really want to try for an academic position do potentially feel more constrained these days about how they could write. You know, there's a real a real nervousness about doing anything else. Right. But I think the flip side of that is that a lot more graduate students realize that if they're going to keep writing history, they're going to need to find a way to do it in a more public facing way for a right. sort of trade market and are, and are interested in writing. Yeah, and I I've been very aware of that, and that has made me hopeful at times. But I guess I I'm not I'm not in a history department that has been willing to sort of restructure itself to to accommodate that kind of interest. And so, you know, I think yeah, it's and 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 it's understandable, right? I mean, like it's 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 a it's an old fashioned traditional academic history department and. And so, you know, it, it makes sense that most of the people in the department are what they're focusing on is trying to find the applicants who could potentially make it as academics. And and I feel like we would we would really need to change things in order to create a culture where we were also sort of providing support and an education for people who wanted to do public facing history. So anyway, I. I applaud any any departments out there that are <laughs> that are actually doing that. Yes, yes. So I want to I want to turn to ask a little bit about Up from the Depths, your most recent book. And I want to talk practically sort of on the page. So if you don't mind, sure. if you're up for it, I'll have you read this excerpt. Yeah, so this is very near the beginning of the book and it's the the book the book alternates its chapters between focusing on Herman Melville and focusing on Lewis Mumford, who was a biographer of uh, Herman Melville, among other things, and this is a this is a um, uh, a Melville chapter, although it has some stuff on Mumford as well. And the the background for getting into this excerpt is is that it's a it's a passage that started off talking about Melville's 1857 novel, The Confidence Man, but then. Uh, I do a little break and um, and I'll start I'll, I'll start reading something that's different from the confidence man, but then it comes back to the confidence man. Anyway, here we go. In the famous chapter of Moby Dick called "The Whiteness of the Whale," Melville wrote with horror of the dumb blankness, full of meaning, 
in a wide landscape of snows, a colorless, all-color atheism from which we shrink. I picture him shrinking at the farmhouse he and his family owned in the Berkshires from 1850 until 1863, staring out at the fields and forests and mountains during the long New England winter. Sometime during that span of years, Melville crossed the narrow line between faith and doubt. A blanketing of fresh snow can soften a landscape, can seem clean and calming, or it can drain away living color so that the countryside becomes dull, pale, sickly. It depends on your perspective. Mumford would be the first to insist that Melville did not surrender, for he kept on writing to the end of his days. But the confidence man clearly represented a crisis of confidence. The book itself, Mumford thought, revealed that sweetness and morality had become for Melville the greatest of frauds. Later, in a letter to a friend, Mumford called the novel a product of Melville's madness, written with only sand and thirst for inspiration. Mumford believed that by 1858, Melville had regained possession of himself. But for a long time afterward, he would be prone to depression and violent mood swings, which tormented his family. So I have to tell you first that I really loved this book. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. But I'm curious, so I, I picked this passage in part just because it has several good examples of you making sort of authorly choices that are choices that a lot of historians and academics especially don't make, right? So there's some first, there's some first person in here. There's even a little bit of second person. You sort of imagine where he's sitting. Are those, are those choices that you make consciously while you're working or do they just, is that kind of just part of your voice? Um, it's both. You know, I, I definitely am conscious of wanting to make choices that are unusual for academic writing, but I also have been writing this way for such a long time that it's fairly natural for me to do it. You know, we could, we could spend many hours just talking about the use of the first person, but, but I, I sort of, I just think of it as another writing tool that we have to, to sort of shake things up and add, uh, add variety and, and humanize what it is that we're doing. You know, I, I guess also in this passage, there's a fair amount of almost like philosophizing, like a, a, the, and, and that is, that is something that's really important to me. I, I, I really like, well, I, I try to write, things that are similar to what I love to read. And I love it when what I'm reading has layers to it so that, you know, in a, in a history book, you, you might be deep inside or, or a novel for that matter. You might be inside a particular historical moment and texture or even a scene. And then there's, you know, there's a moment like, like what Melville does uh, you know, where, where the author pulls back and, and says something philosophical about whiteness. And that's just, that's very exciting to me. You know, it's like the, the, to me, there's no reason why you can't have both things happening simultaneously, the, the sort of immediate scene and, um, and the philosophy. So yeah, that's, that's definitely part of what I try to do. And, and, you know, 
writing specifically about Melville, I definitely was was trying to write. I, I, I hope that doesn't sound presumptuous, but I try to write like Melville to some extent, try to take inspiration from the way he plays with form and structure and and um, and seems to create a form and structure that go along with his subject matter. That's to me the the, the sort of most beautiful, satisfying kind of thing to read is is where the the form really fits perfectly with the subject. One one thing that makes this book so narratively interesting and I suspect would have make it challenging <laughs> to write is that there's sort of this telescoping aspect happening, right? Where there's Melville, there's Mumford, there's Mumford writing about Melville, and then there's you and you writing about Mumford and about Melville. Yeah. Was it hard hard to balance those voices and those perspectives? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a challenge, but it was a really fun challenge to work with. For everything that I write, the the structure of it is just as important and just as enticing as as the subject matter. And so from the moment I conceived of this project, I conceived of it as having short alternating chapters, you know, between the two subjects. And and yeah, I I I knew like what you were saying about, you know, Mumford commenting on Mel. It's like, okay. The, the Mumford chapters are going to be mostly about Mumford, but then in the Melville chapters, I've got to be able to use what Mumford said about Melville as part of it. And so though just inherently those chapters are going to be, are going to feel more sort of intermingled between the two characters. And, um, and I have to be some sort of presence in, um, in all of the chapters, although I actually, so <laughs> the book that I published before this one, has a ton of first person. It's like it's it's like maybe sixty five percent history and thirty five percent memoir. So I I did I wanted to do something very different in this book. So the the first person is is actually not very present uh, in this book. But I you know you're the author. You have to you have to comment. Um, so you you are a presence no matter what. But it was fun. It 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 was like it just really kind of exciting to to figure out how to make the alternating chapters work um and i and i have to say i got lots of pushback lots of skepticism and uh and that was all really helpful to me in in sort of figuring out how to make sure that it did make sense you know how to how to make the juxtapositions between the chapters really really meaningful so that you know i didn't want to i didn't want to make it too obvious i never like to hit readers over the head but um but to to make sure that there there were sort of enough pleasing resonances to make the reader feel like it's worthwhile to sort of lose the thread of one story you know it's like you're you're reading along about herman melville you're in the 19th century for 10 pages and then boom, suddenly you're in the 20th century with Lewis Mumford. And that, you know, so, some of my early readers made it clear that that was quite jarring for them. And, um, and they didn't, and, and they wanted to know why, like, why, why are you doing this? And, you know, so that, that also forced me to sort of refine what I say at the beginning of the book about, uh, and, and it, that's always a very tricky thing for me. Cause I don't want to, 
I don't want to explain anything away. I, I really, I really dislike introductions that tell you everything you need to know about the book before you get into it. So there was, there was this sort of fine line that, uh, that I found myself walking, which was a really interesting writing challenge. I, I, I had a fair amount of angst about it because my, my instinct is to like, not say very much at the beginning and just let a reader be immersed and figure it out for themselves. But ultimately, you know, I got enough pushback that I felt like I had to say a little bit more. And, and ultimately I think that that helps. I think it, it, it helps orient people or at least just get them a little bit more prepared for the, um, for the head spinning structure. I'm sure not on accident. It reminded me of reading Moby Dick, you know, where you're you're right there on the ship, and then of Good. course you're you're pulled in another direction. I I know from from reading the prologue to your next book that you dealt with some personal challenges while you were working on up from the depths, um, including some family members' health issues. How how did you deal with researching and writing during that time? And maybe a better question is how how did you get back to it after that? Hmm. Um. Yeah. So. Um. Melville has this this great line in his book White Jacket about Cape Horn and and the the metaphorical Cape Horn that every person has, you know, like at, at some point in your life you have to go around Cape Horn and and some people, you know, have good weather and make it no problem and other people very nearly go down with the ship and and Mumford actually loved to quote that constantly throughout his life. Uh, and he had many Cape Horns in his life, and I've had a few. And and I think the the well, how can I put this? I don't I don't think there's any formula for for how you get back to your life. I I, I guess one thing I learned was just to be really patient with yourself and and understanding kind to yourself. And I, I, I say that in the context, you know, it's like this, this we're, we're talking ab about life in the academy and, and most of us who find ourselves here are, have a pretty high standard for, shall we say, productivity and feel like we should be working a lot of the time. And, and sometimes you just can't. And that's, uh, that's really okay. And I, I really try to reinforce that with my students who feel an incredible amount of pressure as, as all graduate students do. It's, you know, life, life is way more important than work, even, even when work is a really crucial part of your life. Um, and I, I draw a, a huge amount of satisfaction and fulfillment from various aspects of my work. But yeah, uh, you know, I guess I guess I just eventually reached a point where getting back to work was helpful in in the, the sort of coping with trauma that that I was trying to do and I feel very lucky that that eventually happened. I don't think I did anything to make it happen. I I think it just worked itself out. And I was, and, you know, it's like, especially now also having gone through the pandemic, 
because so what 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 you were referring to um, before I think was I had both parents suffer from pretty bad cases of dementia and and so over a number of years I was I was it was it was that classic sandwich generation you know like I was trying to raise young kids and I was also trying to take care of really ailing parents and 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 dementia is a really complicated and disorienting disease so it was hard to do any work during that during those years and then you know i thought that was my cape horn but then the pandemic happened and that's definitely been another cape horn for many people it it, it has sort of made me realize that there are just cycles uh to life and sometimes you can work and sometimes you can't and i just try to be grateful for the times that I can, uh, like, like I was describing with, uh, with up from the depths when I had a really, really nice run of a few months, but certainly I, I have found it incredibly challenging to do any creative work during the last three years. So, yeah, I mean, just trying to persevere. And I think the, you know, I guess the other thing I would say is that the two, the two genres that I found most helpful in coping with trauma were history and comedy. I really, I feel like you, you just, you need perspective and history and comedy are both really good at that. Well, that that's kind of a perfect transition to talk about your next book coming out. It looks, looks really interesting and really fun. And it seems to kind of have a different, different tone maybe than some of your other work. So could you, could you talk yeah. a little bit, little bit about what it is, but also how it came about? Sure. Yeah. So, um, and this is, it's never happened to me before, and I'm sure will never happen again that I have two books coming out in two consecutive years, but both of these were written before the pandemic. And this, this new one that's coming out, which is called Stay Cool, Why Dark Comedy Matters in the Fight Against Climate Change. Um, is a very, very short, it's literally one quarter the length of Up From the Depths. It's under a hundred pages and it's very, uh, it's meant to be uh, a very light, fun read. And I wrote it in 2018 for the most part. I mean, like I definitely have expanded it and revised it a lot since then, but like I wrote it before I wrote Up From the Depths and it was just rejected over and over again back then it just didn't seem to be the right cultural moment for for dark comedy and climate change but you know we're in a different moment now and uh, i'm really really glad that it finally found a home and and is coming out but th but this this book came pretty specifically from my experience of of trauma with Alzheimer's disease in my parents. You know, it's it and and I have lots of friends and colleagues and acquaintances who have gone through this or are going through this and and you know everybody sort of agrees that you just have to laugh because otherwise you'd be crying all the time. And you know, so it was a it was a very personal like the my my turn toward comedy and the history and theory of comedy was was quite personal in a way, but but as soon as I started doing that out of out of you know psychological need, I, I I also immediately connected it to climate change because a lot of us are I, the when when I 
when I use the word tr trauma, I mean, like, I, I also got very, um, and this was this was not as productive for me psychologically, psychologically, but I got very into trauma theory for a while and and read a lot of that. Anyway, trauma can mean many different things, but right now I really associate that word with what a lot of people are feeling about climate change. And so, anyway, the the personal and the political kind of suddenly connected for me. Um, and and I was also inspired by uh, a friend of mine named Jenny Price, who was working through some of these same ideas about how comedy can be useful in the in the context of climate change. And she even taught a class about that, and you know shared some things with me. And and yeah, then uh, then I just started experiment. I I I I read a huge amount of not only history and theory of comedy, but comedic writing um, and thought about how how one could learn to write comedically. So it became uh, a, a kind of writing challenge in addition to uh, a new scholarly project. And it was so fun to write. I can't tell. I mean, it just was like such uh, a kind of different experience. Uh, and and liberating in uh, in so many ways, and, and you know, like it it it's very hard for me to say whether it was sort of succeeding in its early drafts. Like I I I don't think that the published the the version that's about to be published is that different, but but you know, it's possible that in the early early versions i was trying a little bit too hard to be funny in my writing i was i was sort of enthralled with that idea that you could learn how to be funny in even when you were writing something that was based on scholarship but anyway you know the i think the the ultimate takeaway for me is 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 that it's sort of it's another useful thing to have in your writerly toolkit to just every now and then, even, even in a, you know, what is on the surface, uh, an entirely serious work of scholarship, you can crack a joke here and there and the reader will probably enjoy it and appreciate it. Um, some, some cranky readers will be like, well, you know, that, you know, broke my flow or <laughs> or it's, you know, it felt too forced or artificial or, or whatever. That's fine. I mean, like, you're always going to have different readers respond in different ways. But but anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think I told you before this interview that I, I have often railed that I think that historians underutilize humor as a way to reach audiences. But I am curious. I mean, do you feel like that's that's a form of craft you can learn that you can work on? Absolutely. I mean, a big part of my practice of teaching writing is quite simple. It's just, let's read stuff that is really, really good. And that, you know, as, as you know, in the academy, like, especially in a PhD program, nobody chooses the books based on how well they're written. They're just, it's just like, we need to cover this field, you know, whatever the most important books are in this field, that's what we need to read. And that's, I get it. I totally understand it. But like, I want to do something different when I'm teaching writing. And what you read absolutely influences how you write. There's just like, you know, this has been studied and it's very, very clear. 
uh, and I could I could talk about my own personal experience with this. But um, but the the point is like you just uh, like what I did was immerse myself in lots and lots of comedic writing. And I also, I mean, I love stand-up comedy and I just like, I would, I would sit and watch stand-up specials whenever I had a spare hour. And you can learn, you like, it's craft. You can learn it. You, you can practice it. I wrote a lot of stuff that, you know, will never be published and isn't publishable, but like that helped me learn. Like, I remember an essay I wrote that, that I wound up giving to my wife as an anniversary present that that was called How Not to Yell at Your Kids. Um, that was just basically practice in comedic writing. And we in in Hall, we did this uh, thing called a history slam every year for many years in a row. And I, you know, it's like you could you could stand up for five minutes and read anything you wanted. And so, you know, for a few years I was just trying to write comedically for for the history slam. And it was super fun and 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 yeah, I, I totally think you can learn. I, I, I'm not the, you know, there are, there are books out there that you can read that give you a formula for how to be funny in writing. And I don't, I like, I didn't read those. I'm not, I'm not really interested in those kinds of formulas, but I, but I, but I very much believe in the immersion method of just like finding, finding books that you find to be really, really funny and effective and reading a whole bunch of them and soaking up what they do in terms of technique, getting it in your head and, um, and then trying it out and, um, and just continuing to write until you feel good about what you're doing. I suspect based on this conversation that the answer to this could keep us here um, for a long time, but I'll ask you to maybe, <laughs> maybe pick some no, no, it's great, but I'll ask you to pick some favorites. But are are there people who you read, who you look to for for inspiration? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I do love to read in all different genres, but since what I write, I consider to be creative nonfiction. My my most important inspiration is is from other practitioners of creative nonfiction. So I and basically essayists. Um, I love Rebecca Solnit. I've been reading her for you know, more than 20 years now. And I, I just, her mind is so amazing. But one of my favorite things about essays in general is the the sort of surprising connections that they make. It's the, the, the form, the, the genre is just made for like, to allow somebody's mind to wander. And, um, and I just love the connections that she makes. I've also been reading a lot of Lauren Redness, um, and she is a graphic artist. So she does she does basically comic books, but nonfiction, and they're beautiful. And also, it's just like I I really love thinking through the relationship between text and image. Um, I've tried to do some of that in my work, and um, and I just love the way that she does it. And then you know, for sort of old, more old standard. Sources of inspiration. I love James Baldwin's essays and Wallace Stegner's uh, fiction and nonfiction. And one, you know, I just want one other I'll mention, whom I use quite a bit in my teaching, um, is this like incredibly quirky guy named Guy Davenport, who was an English professor at the University of Kentucky for many decades and wrote all sorts of things. 
lots and lots of short stories, so fiction, but also, you know, scholarship and and also these like really, really bizarre but gem-like creative nonfiction essays on on almost any topic you could imagine. He just was so wide ranging in his interests and and some of the essays are like two pages long. And I, I will use them in my in my writing classes. Um, and I'll, I'll just sort of read out loud, um, paragraph by paragraph. And, and it's, it's just like, not everybody in the class, but, but many times I will look up from reading and, and people are just smiling because it's just, it's just so like beautiful and clever and fun. And it's so like invested in the pleasure of language. So yeah, he's, I love going back to him, even if, even if it's just like reading two pages. I'm curious. So you and John Dimas co-edit this series for Yale University Press, um, which I think if I'm remembering, is called New Directions in Narrative History. Yes. And that name made me wonder what, what do you wish you saw in narrative history? What new directions would you, would you love to read? I mean, I, we, we, we started that series just in the in the hope that it would be attractive especially to younger scholars who you know who wanted to write history as literature and wanted to have a, a kind of the imprimatur of a of a university press but editors who were open to absolutely any kind of excuse me experimentation i don't think he and i have ever been like we're just not super directive kind of people we don't it's like we don't we never wanted to set an agenda for for the profession it was more like here's an open window and we really hope you throw something through it and yeah i mean like it's it's all right to be to be frank again um it's it's been absolutely wonderful to get to work on the books that we've been able to work on for that series and what one of them has been hugely influential for me actually kind of inspired the structure of Up From the Depths. But over the years, we've gotten very, very few submissions. And um, and the number has just decreased to almost none. And the presses, and you know, we, we had an original editor who was very enthusiastic about it, and he eventually retired. And, you know, the, the, the press, the press has not been super interested in the series. And, and yeah, so I'm that's another thing I'm somewhat sad about. I, I'm, I'm, it's been absolutely lovely to get to work with John and to work with all of the authors who have been in the series, but, um, but that also seems to be something that's coming to an end. Well, before I let you go, I, I would love to know um, if, if there's anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to talk about. Sure. I mean, the, uh, I'm kind of, it's kind of on hold. Like it's, it's, uh, I was, I was working on it a fair amount in the fall and over winter break, but it's, it's now on hold because of, you know, an, an intense teaching semester and a, a, another book coming out next month that I have to write things for and, and all that. But, but yeah, the, the project that I have been working on over the long term is about environmental justice and and what i'm trying to do with that is is kind of unpack the idea of environmental justice from a historical perspective so the environmental justice movement 
really only date as a, as a movement dates to the 1980s. But what I'm trying to do in this book is to say that like, well, there, there, there are ideas in Western history that have been bouncing around since uh, at least the 17th century. And so what, what happens if we start to explore these ideas as, you know, like precursors to the environmental justice movement and, and sort of helpful perspectives for what we're dealing with now? And this is something that I've been interested in for several decades. Actually, I, I worked on it when I was working at the World Watch Institute right after college in the mid 90s. And and the writing challenge for this particular project is that it's just way more sweeping than anything I've ever done before. You know, like at the right now I've I've mapped out six chapters and um and I have to cover like 400 years and I've never I've covered I've covered 100 years before but I've never covered 400 years. And so yeah, it's just a really interesting challenge to and I have to say, it's like, it's hard to, it's hard to feel confident, you know, like the, I've, I've always been somewhat skeptical of scholarly expertise, but, um, but you do, you know, like when you are a scholar, you, you, you sort of take some solace in when you're a historian, I guess, in knowing a particular time period fairly well, like I know the 19th century pretty well, but, um, but, you know, like I do not know the 17th century very well. And, it, and on the one hand, it's been super fun to learn about other time periods and and just read really widely and uh, promiscuously, as it were. Um, but uh, but, yeah, it's it's I, I definitely have struggled to to find a voice. I mean, it's also been the, the pandemic. It's been really, really hard to um, to find the time and energy. But um, but I have I've had a couple of moments and and I feel like it's I, I will be able to to get back into it. And it's and it's fun to to try to develop that confidence to be able to say something, for instance, about the 17th century and to be able to to sort of figure out ways of covering a lot of ground with without making it feel like it's just one damn thing after another, you know, like one one example after another of of a similar thing you know it's it's you know it's been fun to to stumble upon just the right case study or just or or suddenly remember some work of literature like uh, just to make this a little bit more concrete when i was working on the 17th century the main thing that i was focusing on um was uh the diggers who were a a, a group in england during the english revolution who who basically like claimed a hillside it was it was common land and they were like look we need a place to grow food we're going to we're going to camp out here and and have this commune essentially but as i was working on the diggers i was just reading around in um in 17th century british literature and i was like oh my gosh paradise lost totally has environmental justice aspects to it so so like wow i can I, now i can write a whole section on paradise lost anyways it's that's it's been fun and i'm looking forward to getting back to it fantastic well dr aaron Sachs, thank you so much for joining me on drafting the past this was, was such a great conversation thank you for having me it was really a pleasure 
Thanks again to Dr. Aaron Sachs for taking the time to talk writing with me. And thanks to you for listening. You can find links to all of the books we talked about, including Aaron's recent work, in the show notes at draftingthepast.com. Until next time, remember that friends don't let friends write boring history. <laughs>